Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Death and dying. These are subjects a lot of us avoid, even though for all of us, dying is a natural part of life. Today, we're going to spend time with some of the people who have made helping us greet death their life's work. Plus, we'll take a trip about an hour northeast to Larkspur, one of the only conservation burial grounds in the country. We'll get to see up close what a natural burial looks like for loved ones saying their goodbyes. But first, it's time for At Us. Every Thursday, we're taking time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. What is up, Anna? Hey, Khalil. Glad to be back. Good to have you with us. So, last week we had an episode about Nashville's indigenous roots. It was a thorough episode and a thoroughly researched one at that. After the show, we heard from a lot of you, including a listener named Ken, who wrote, My wife was assistant director and briefly director at Fort Nashville. One of the things she learned was that the Nashville area was known as the area of bad air, so natives didn't hang around, but they used the area as a hunting ground. After hearing our show about ancient Nashville, which was a bustling city of thousands of Native American people, Ken said he wondered about what he heard. Ken continues, I'm curious if that was a myth about the air, or maybe that's when settlers started to arrive. Yeah, I found his um, email really curious, so I wanted to get a little bit of context, and I reached out to Tennessee archaeologist Aaron Dieter Wolf who listeners may remember from last week's episode because he kind of, you know, helped us fact check a little bit. Mm -hmm. In an email, Aaron said that he heard of parts of Texas referred to, quote, the land of bad air by Native Americans, but not the Nashville area. He did note that indigenous folks did leave the region by the late 15th century because of terrible droughts and related famines. As a modern Nashville resident, it's really hard to imagine the area being in a drought with all this rain we've been having lately. Yes, that is the truth. There's been plenty of rain. What else did we hear about that episode? We got a voicemail from our listener, Bill, who left us a message at thisisnashville.org. We live out near Old Stone Fort Park in uh, the State Archaeological Park, and it's interesting to dovetail your show um, about ancient Nashville with what little we've learned about indigenous peoples that lived around our area. And what little we do know is highly interesting and makes us highly respectful of those who came before us. And uh, just a great show and a great reminder. Well, thank you very much, Bill. We appreciate that. All right, Anna, what else do we have? Well, Monday's show was a powerful episode about domestic violence. One of our guests was Assistant District Attorney Christina Johnson, who wrote to us afterwards to thank us and to say that the more people who talk about these issues, the less taboo they become and the more people are likely to get help. We really hope that's the case. And we compiled the list of domestic violence resources and shared those on our website, which listeners can look up at any time. You know, that episode really touched everyone on our team, especially hearing from Anita Smith. She's been a guest on our program before 
on our show about thrifting in Nashville. Anita is a survivor of domestic violence, and she came on to share her personal experience. So after we stopped recording, Anita pulled a few of us aside to tell us about a poem she found that really impacted her. We thought it'd be nice to share that poem with you all today, especially since it's National Poetry Month, and we had a full episode on poetry this week. So um, I'm just going to read a portion of it, and it's called He Gave Me Flowers Today by Sandra Birch. I got flowers today. It wasn't my birthday or any other special day. We had our first argument last night. He said a lot of things that hurt me. I know he must be sorry because he gave me flowers today. I got flowers today. It wasn't our anniversary or any other special day. Last night, he threw me into a wall and choked me. It seemed like a nightmare. I couldn't believe it was real. I woke up this morning, sore and bruised. I knew he must be sorry because he gave me flowers today. I got flowers today. It wasn't Mother's Day or any other special day. Last night, he beat me up again. And it was worse than the other times. If I leave him, what will I do? How will I take care of my children? I'm afraid of him and scared to leave. I know that he must be sorry because he gave me flowers today. That is very, very powerful. And, you know, again, we're so grateful to Anita for sharing her experiences so openly. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, or if you're not sure if your situation is domestic violence, you can talk to an advocate at the Family Safety Center. That number is 615-880-1100. Again, 615-880-1100. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week, same time, same place course you and listeners know where to find me all right don't forget to at us on twitter instagram and facebook and let's keep the comments coming also fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org we have to take a short break when we come back we're heading out to larkspur tennessee's only conservation burial ground We'll learn what natural burial looks like and what sets the process apart from a more traditional burial. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. About an hour northeast of Nashville, there's a 172-acre preserve protected by the Nature Conservancy. It's lush and green, and you might not know it from looking at it, but it's a burial ground. In fact, it's the only conservation burial ground in Tennessee, and only one of about a dozen in the country. Larkspur Conservation is a nonprofit dedicated to restoring the land to its native state. And it's a place where people can choose to be buried in a natural way. No embalming, not even a casket if you don't want one. As it goes, the natural burial is something of a ritual for family and friends. A ritual that starts at the bottom of a steep hill. Our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, spent an afternoon at Larkspur back in January, where she got to walk through this process with one man, saying goodbye to his son. Jason Zimmerman was just 42 when he died. His dad, Mark, is here to say goodbye. 
He is a wonderful man. He was wonderful. He was a great guy. What was he like? Oh, man. He is full of life, full of beans, you know. I start the hike uphill to Jason's burial site, and it's some work getting to the top. John Christian Pfeiffer is with me. He's the executive director of Larkspur Conservation. Growing up on a farm in western Tennessee, he was fascinated with nature, and he actually had a little cemetery where he'd bury family pets when they died. And this included grasshoppers he'd find. He says he'd wrap them with a shroud made of leaves, and he'd mark the spot with a fork from the kitchen drawer. In seventh grade, I told my parents I wanted to be a mortician, not fully understanding the weight of what, I, what, that, what that work was. He says he wants to honor a life's existence, and he feels natural burial does that. There's something about being so in tune with the earth. And as we're walking up the trail, he's smoothing out tire prints with his feet. When something catches his eye, of course he picks it up. It's a crinoid. It's a 320 million year old sea creature from this land, when this land was covered by a shallow sea. Is that all? Nah, that's all. <laughs> a baby crinoid. A baby crinoid. I just have a tendency of picking them up when I see them and may give it to the father today. May pop it back down on the, on the ground. <sighs> At the burial site, Jason is there wrapped in a cream-colored shroud that John Christian made himself. Just this morning before we arrived, he wrapped Jason's body. The shroud is twisted neatly over his head and then tucked down behind his shoulder. You can clearly make out the shape of his entire person. Cloth straps, they secure him to a pine platform with sprigs of evergreen trees supporting his lower back and under his knees. And roses are tucked into the cloth folds near his chest. It's more like we're swaddling an yeah. adult body in a way. I guess it harkens back to those leaves that I used on grasshoppers when I was a kid. You just create a design that looks, uh, looks appropriate and beautiful and simple and that does what it's intended to do. We're gathered around Jason's body. A few family members joined by FaceTime. Mark, Jason's dad though, is the only family member here in person. He peers down at his son. Okay. I guess he ain't getting up. Doggone it. I really wanted him to wake up when he was in the hospital because we collectively wanted to beat his ass. You know what I mean? <laughs> Get your ass up. True to form, he ain't doing nothing that he don't want to do. The plot has been custom dug for his height. The edges have been smoothed by hand and a bed of leaves, twigs, pine needles, and flower petals are placed at the bottom. John Christian says it reminds him of the way a mother bird prepares her nest to receive something special. With his help and a couple others, Mark lowers okay. Jason into his grave by rope. Slowly, slowly, slowly. I'm just gonna let the rope fall in. He's gonna let it fall in. You can let Paul oh, in. You want to leave it in there? Yeah. Then everyone takes a turn with shovels, starting with the soil that came out last and ending with the topsoil. We bury Jason.
Yeah, this is a hands-on rather than everybody standing there in their overcoats and, you know, this is hands-on, yeah. You get to participate in covering the body, you know, yeah. Play some, uh... Play some Monkey Man by the Stones after the... It takes about an hour. Mark finishes by covering the plot with pine needles and flower petals. We sip hot cocoa, talk a bit about Jason, and look at a childhood photo until Mark's ready to walk back down the hill. We ain't supposed to be planting our kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, since he has to go, this is the best way. You know, at least he's giving back, and I feel that's important. Yeah. And I'm going to do the very same thing, hopefully, in this area. In a quiet moment, sitting up on a picnic table in a meadow not too far away from Jason's space, I asked John Christian what he thinks happens to us after we die. You think we're okay after we leave or after we're out of our shell? Mm. I think we're okay. I think we're okay after we die. Whatever is on the other side and whatever it looks like, whether that's streets of gold and living above the clouds or that's our energy dancing through the grasses and um, coming up with the weeds. I can tell you one thing. When I die and I'm buried here at Larkspur, and my body starts returning to the soil and goes up through the roots of these plants, this stalk of ironweed, and comes out as pollen on the tip of that flower and rides a bumblebee, that's gonna be pretty neat. I'm joined now by Lindsay Baydoon. Her father was buried at Luxburg last year. Lindsay, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. First of all, we're really sorry, very sorry for your loss. I appreciate that. My dad was a awesome dude, but thank you for that. What type of memories come back as you hearing sounds of Jason's burial? What, what memories come back yeah. about your dad, Corey? I mean, you know, it's such a, it's interesting to hear other people's stories with this beautiful place, because I think that if you're, you know, my dad was a, I, I resonate with that, full of life, just full of life, full of laughter, um, very connected to the people around him, the earth beneath him. You know, he was a music man, but he was also a camping guy, you know? So to me, this, this, this place is, is the perfect testament to a, a life like his. Um, and I just, I love that so much. He's just a, a very special, very, very vibrant human. Your father had early onset dementia. As your father, yes. as his condition worsened, how did you adapt your life to care for him? So, you know, I'm, I'm quite young um, to, to have, you know, a father this sick. He was diagnosed about um, six years ago or so. You know, he has has young grandchildren still. So it, I think what's hard when you have um, a parent who has a disease like this, 
um, you know, there's not a lot of peers that you can relate to because most it's most of my friends in our age group they're not they're not dealing with um, ailing parents in this in this manner. You know, particularly with a, de- a, a horrible disease like the de- you know the spectrum of dementia. It's it's a it's a very long death in many ways. It's a very slow death, but it's very uncharted territory. Mm. You know, there was any of a lot of the support groups didn't have people my age. You know, I wasn't even 30 at the time, just trying to figure it out, raising my own little kids mixed with more and more um, being the caregivers for our dad. It beca- particularly in the later years, he was a young, fit dude. You know, he was outdoorsy. So we're not talking about like a frail 90 year old. He was. It, in beautiful shape. He looked like himself up to the last moments of his life, just handsome as ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really, really hard, just, uh, just, just toward the end, particularly because it takes a toll. You feel you have, you have no control, particularly toward the end, and you're kind of just grasping at straws. So it was, it was really tough, particularly on my sister, who um, was his, his, his main character, his, his girl. Um, but you know. Kind of like the, the the other gentleman said, like, you know, it it, it sucks. It, it it was it's not right. Um, but if it has to end, at least, and in the end, through this experience, we were able to to allow him to die in a better way or in the best way that we could under the circumstances, given the cruel the cruel uh, disease he was given. Other than your sister, do you have other siblings? Yeah, my I have a, a little a little brother. He's not little, but um, his name's Nathan. And uh, yeah, the the three of us really, you know, I mean, we're a very very close family for sure. But um, you know, the three of us, we did everything, made every choice together for him. He, my dad, more he loved music, he loved the earth, but he loved his kids, mm-hmm. and we were his. Uh, and he, we could do no wrong by him. This is a man who never heard him raise his voice. You know. He was just a, a good guy. Loved his kiddos. You know, Lindsay, did your father ever talk about his wishes for his burial before he passed? Like, how did he want to be laid to rest? Sure. So, you know, that's what's hard. My dad didn't like sad things. You know, he was, he did not like anything sad, even through the disease. You know, my and my extended family are all, uh, most of them are in healthcare, in emergent healthcare, as as it were. Um, so, you know, death was not something that was a taboo subject for the extended family. But when it com- came to my dad, you know, he just didn't like to talk about sad things. But we kind of, you know, we knew he, I know he hated cemetery. You know, he, he hated cemeteries and the death, the, the ceremonial, ceremonial death process as it, as it were in just, you know, the heaviness, the sadness the black clothes, you know, he didn't, he, he always, he never enjoyed that. So we did, when he did finally pass, you know, initially we were going to have him cremated and scatter his ashes somewhere he loved, like the beach or, you know, in the mountains where we, we grew up or something like that. Um, until we were connected to Larkspur, because although we didn't know exact specifically what we want, because, you know, and that's it's so important to have those conversations, we knew what he didn't want. And what he didn't want is to be any, uh, cause any additional pain than just losing him in and of itself would be. Um, so we, we knew what he didn't want, mm-hmm. but we didn't know, we didn't have any tangible experience with what he did want which is why I want, I can't express enough the magic of Larkspur because it's exactly what 
he didn't know existed, how but did, is exactly for him, you know? How did you learn about Locksburg? You know, oddly enough, so again, years ago when he was first diagnosed and you're just, you know, when you get a diagnosis like that, particularly when you're younger, like we were, I did some quick, just trying to wrap my brain around it. Um, we were in Nashville, you know, and I did just, I was like, God, you know, it, essentially with dementia, you don't, they don't know anything except for you're, you're dying, you know, but they, and so that's like the only tangible thing that I knew in the future. So I started to think about, well, where would, when it eventually does happen, where will it be? And back then, you know, years ago, I had did some Googling and Larkspur popped up, but it, it was in its infancy. They were still kind of trying to fundraise. And it's funny, I shot an email to John Christian, who's, um, who you heard from previously, and just offered my volunteer work. So I was like, gosh, you know, I don't, I don't need you at this time, but I think what you're doing sounds profound. If you need any, you know, help, how can I help this happen? And then life went on, years went by, and then I forgot about it until the morning, the morning my father died. The son had he, he passed at home in my home, um, in my in my music room, and the morning he was, we were all set to to have him sent for cremation and all that. And then I, I was standing there and looking at my family and like, wait a minute, hold on. Wait, I remember years ago doing, you know, there's this place. I don't have a lot of details. It's called Larkspur. I don't even know if they are officially up and running. And I did a, a re-Google and within a couple hours, it was just like, we all, it, we, it washed us with just calm and, and gratitude of like, it's, I talked to John Christian, I talked to some other folks there and, and it was a, a confirmation of like, oh yeah, this is change of plans. And we literally pivoted that morning to this, which I'm so grateful for. We were, the next day we went out with my brother and sister, we went and chose it, walked the grounds, just, it was profound, found a spot that we know he would have loved. And then, you know, a, a week later we, we buried him. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking about Larkspur, Larkspur con conservation, something my next guest knows a lot about. Becca Stephen leads Larkspur Conservation as board chair, alongside executive director John Christian Pfeiffer, who we heard from earlier. She's also the founder of Thistle Farms and serves as chaplain at St. Augustine's. Becca, thank you for joining us. I am so happy to be with you. What an honor and what a holy day to talk about. Honor to have you along with us. So can you tell me, how did Larkspur come to be? Absolutely. So I was walking in Percy Warner Park with one of my dear friends, Tara Armistead, who is a landscape architect. And most of my ideas for how we're going to start not-for-profits here in Nashville and around the world. There's been about 10 now over the course of the years. Hmm. Happens in those woods. It just happens. And I, we were walking by this place in the park where there were divots in the ground. And Tara said that's where the slaves were buried that were a part of Belmead Plantation. And I just stopped and I thought about how tragic and holy and haunting and beautiful those graves were. And I kept thinking about in that moment how everything came together. My dad was a pastor in Nashville. He was killed when I was five years old in this community by a drunk driver. And I remember my mom saying, we don't bury money. 
And I've been an Episcopal priest in this community for more than 30 years. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is how we need to bury. This is holy and like immediate. There's nothing separating us from the idea of greed. And it's a cheaper way to do it with a way to conserve the land, all the things I love. And that day, the idea of Larkspur was born. And at that point, Tara and I turned to um, an amazing man who was just retiring from the law school at Vanderbilt, Don Welch. And the three of us then found by the grace of God, John Christian, who is a gift. I mean, just everything you could imagine in the you know, initial executive director to help execute this idea. You know, and we started, we started talking about it. Go in, ahead. In the story about Jason Zimmerman's service, you know, we hear about how natural burial takes place and listening to you now, it feels to me like this is like a part of the natural cycle of life, a lot more different than conventional burials. Tell me th the significance to you of a natural burial. You know, I think one of, I think he said early on, or somebody on the show said early on something about how it reflects birth and death are reflected in each other. You know, it's the two times you start counting breaths when somebody's born and when somebody's laboring to be born and when someone's laboring to die. And for me, what had happened over the years, I mean, you know, the way that we in general bury people now has nothing to do with the traditional burials. It's like we wanted to clean it up and anesthetize us from the reality of it. So, you know, you roll out fake carpet, you put concrete barriers, but you lose something in it. And for me as a priest, I was, as an Episcopal priest, I was losing something in it. And I love the idea that we get to help bury, that we don't lose that immediacy so that we can weep with people, so that we can start that mourning process with dignity. Lindsay, how does that resonate with you? Oh, so, so directly. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, we, we brought our father home to die, but we took him to Larkspur to live on. You know, he was, we knew, we buried him. His children buried him. We returned him to the earth. And with, by the time we got home after that beautiful experience, we knew he was alive again, literally. His, he was, turn, he was turning into the root system, as it were, and starting to live on in a way that we could never give him if he were in a traditional ceremony. It is, it's both. And, you know, that's an incredible thing that we get. It's a privilege to be able to have that experience. And it's how we used to do it and how we should be doing it. Becca, you referred to today as a very special and holy day. It's Maundy Thursday. And it's an important day for many Christians. Tell me more about Maundy Thursday and why and what it's important is to the Holy Week. Absolutely. So, you know, this is the eve of Good Friday when love is crowned. Um, it's not that it's you know, there's a triumph over death. It's that we remember that love doesn't die, that everything in our lives dies but love. <clears throat> Makes me choked up, actually. But what I love about this Maundy Thursday when we institute the idea of serving one another and the breaking of bread and the washing of feet is that we 
remember we are resilient and we will love each other until the end. And to me, what Larkspur symbolizes, and you know, now we have not just 176 acres, but Charlie Strobel, who don't, who started, you know, Room in the Inn, donated another 200 acres. And then there's on Short Mountain in Tennessee, another 400 acres given. This idea that we can love our earth, love our brothers and sisters, and do it with dignity. And remember that we are both angels and dirt. And we can go back and be on this Maundy Thursday serving one another even as we die. You know, I'm interested in these customs of body wrapping and the natural burial effect on our grief. Lindsay, how did laying your dad to rest this way, how did it impact you? Um, you know, it was, it, it, for me, it was so important because it took, it took the taboo. It took the fear, particularly for my children. My husband and I have four children together and, you know, that we had lots of, our whole family was there. It was, we buried him the day after our wedding, actually. So we just happened to have just so much family present and to be able to walk, you know, you take that hike up the hill and it's just so therapeutic just to get there. It gets your heart rate going just enough to start to connect you and going up on the hill and you see, you know, I saw my daddy and I saw the outline of his face wrapped in that beautiful shroud. And immediately I just went to him and just laid on him and my brother and sister did too in a way that is natural. And it's, I think in so many, in so many ways we're used to someone dies and they just vanish poof you never see them again or if if you do see them again they're in an open casket but they're embalmed and they're filled with chemicals and all this there was something so profound about seeing the his temple laying wrapped in he was wrapped in the in the sh the cotton shroud and then underneath that he was actually wrapped in um my 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 brother who passed away his baby blanket of, mm. of which is so interesting it fascinates me you know at the beginning of the show when we were talking about when john christian was talking about being swaddled his and what wrapped my father's body first was the swaddle blanket they give you in the hospital when my my baby brother passed away at birth and my father was wrapped in that underneath um his the you know the 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 cotton the larger swaddle for him how beautiful is that it, it blows my mind and it's so it felt the whole experience felt so correct and so sacred um, in a way that brought such peace and healing to our family. It's just incredible. And we still go back there, you know, to this just all the time. We take hikes and picnics and it's, it's pretty magical. You know, it seems to me like this process is a way of accepting death's place in nature, which I, I only understand 100%. It, it really yeah. helps people processing grief. Becca, Am I off with that? It's on it. And the reason that I wanted to name it Larkspur was because they are ephemeral. You know, they come every spring. They're, they're adorning, oh gosh, where the slaves were buried in the middle of Percy Warner Park. They're adorning Radnor Lake and all the beautiful places we call in Tennessee. And it looks like they die, but they come back the next year. So for hundreds of years, these larkspur have been coming, even though they fade. And the idea to be buried among the larkspur is a way, I think, 
you know, to do exactly what you're talking about is honoring the grief and the death, but remembering that there is rebirth and life and love after that. You know, I'm a huge believer in weeping, you know, weeping with, not crying for. And for me, the idea is that we weep and then we do exactly um, like we're talking about. We visit every year and we see new life and we know that love continues on. That is Becca Stevens, Larkspur's board chair. She was joined by photographer Lindsay Badon. Thank you both so much for being with us. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the natural cycle of life and death and invite a few ordained ministers of different traditions to hear how they have made it their life's work to help us greet death. If you have stories you'd like to share about grief, tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Lake and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about a few things most of us tend to avoid. As our guests have been sharing, death and dying are a natural part of life and grief. It isn't always dark. My next guests have dedicated their lives to helping us process the loss of loved ones. Chaplain Omarion Lee serves at Nashville General Hospital. Omarion. Welcome to This is Nashville. Good afternoon, Khalil. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us, sir. Also joining us is Reverend Jeannie Alexander. She's the co-founder and co-director of No Exceptions Prison Collective and a death doula in training. Jeannie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. I, You know, I'd like to learn more about what led each of you down this line of work. Jeannie, I want to start with you. Oh, God. Yeah, um... You know, it's 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 very much a calling. And I think that when your life, when you are responding to a calling, you have to be open to the different ways that that will unfold. So for me, it was a calling out of the practice of law and into an interfaith ministry, but into places where most people don't want to go. Um, and for me, that looked like initially um, homeless encampments um, and jails and then prisons um, and another place that someone doesn't want to go is death. And so in my work within camps and then in prisons over and over again, um, I was present with people while they were dying, as they were leading up to dying and then at times actively dying. And I began to understand that, you know, we see death as something that happens to us. And it's frightening. I think we're very illiterate about death and grief in our culture. Um, how do we become active participants in our own death and the death of loved ones? Is the question that continued to resurface. How do we begin to see death as not just natural, but also a teacher that we can learn from? Um, and so that my entering this work has been just a very sort of natural ongoing process, I think, of stepping deeper into a calling that started back in 2005. As I mentioned, you're a death training to be a death doula. I've never heard <laughs> of a death doula. 
What do death doulas do? Sorry right. for the alliteration. No, it's it's yeah, <laughs> that's that's a great question. Uh, most people have never heard of a death doula. Most, um, I think, of your listeners will be familiar with birth doulas. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have heard about that, right? Mm-hmm. And the death doula movement comes out of that birth doula movement, right? Um, and just as we are midwifed into the world, um, death doulas help us to be midwifed into death. Um, and it is a very intersectional work, um, and it's interesting. And my being a chaplain, actually, at a prison is sort of what led me to that because it is death doulas work actively with people who are dying um, and with their family members, and that looks like a number of different things. It's, it's very, like I said, intersectional. So there can be spiritual components of that, but also work with somebody on what would they like their vigil to look like. You know, a vigil is something that we help plan for during that active process of dying. We can work with people on legacy projects, which is something that you can begin prior to that vigil, an act of death, and then your loved ones can continue on with that afterwards. Um, and that legacy project can be the continuation of someone's work. Like, for example, Larkspur, you know, mm-hmm. the people who have been involved with that, that continuation looks like a legacy project. It can be gathering recipes from someone, you know, uh, creating a garden, creating a work of art. I mean, it can look like whatever you want. Um, but it's being able to be a very active and deep listener, non-judgmental. It is, it is not about the work of helping someone get right with God, per se, whatever God means to them, um, but getting more right with themselves and at peace with death. Um, and, and this is something that doesn't require... Anyone to be religious at all, quite frankly. Um, many de- many atheists, many people who profess no faith could greatly benefit from that work. Hmm. Omarion, tell us about your journey of service. Absolutely. Um, so, well, much like Jenny, coming into this work uh, as an ordained minister, but moved from there into spiritual care and focusing in chaplaincy work, um, first being present and being trained in the VA system, I started to learn to witness death uh, from those that were fighting uh, kidney failure, right? And uh, that are in uh, in the nephrology wards and seeing that happen over at the VA and our um, veterans facing that. Um, just as Jenny stated, you know, a lot of it is that we look at death and we see it as something that uh, is painful, something that is dreadful. And we just, we have a grave misunderstanding in that it's really a, an absolute part of life. It's something that we uh, have to embrace. So I, I started um, seeing and saying that, you know, we celebrate life, but do we truly celebrate death? Uh, and, and, it, and when we think of celebration, we put boundaries on those things, but we make them um, either positive or negative instead of that it, it, it just is. And how do we really kind of have grace and grow into it? Now, tell me about hospital ministry. What exactly is that? So, so you look at it like this. This is where I kind of explain it to my colleagues that are pulpit ministers. Um, the hospital is, if you look at it in a place of like, like a church or like a, a congregation, it's the employees that are there that are the members, 
the employees, they, the ones that are there that are doing the life-saving work, that are cleaning the floors, emptying the trash, securing the buildings, that are setting the budgets, that are standing at the bedsides of the patients that come in and out. Um, you're ministering to them because that's what the constant is. Those that are making the meals, making those plans, uh, they have a whole lot of things going on outside of working in the hospital that they face. So being present and working with them really kind of helped to form the community there to care for those that are sick, uh, helping them be their best because, you know, uh, the chaplain can't be in every room and can't be at every place at every bedside. So it's about being able to help them be in their best to show that love to those that come in their worst state. People that, that come in that are in critical conditions, that have had that are facing traumatic situations that are life altering most most often, um, and so that you can try to help the entire um, hospital be a ministry of of love and presence for those persons to help them be calm. Um, it's so in its difference from the the pulpit ministry, the hospital ministry is open every day, seven days a week around the clock, right? And so it's always moving, it's ever evolving, ever changing, it's ever giving life and also being there as the recipient as life ends. You know, we've mentioned this a few times so far this hour that death is something we tend to fear and recoil from. Jeannie, why do you think that is? Well, I think because it's still very taboo in our culture, you know, we don't we don't think about things so often. I don't want to say we don't because that's not true. I want to say that uh, what has been very much a dominant culture perspective is that it's something that has become very clinical. It's become very sanitized. Uh, we we and we almost want to think about death as something we're going to somehow survive. Right. We, we don't mm-hmm. engage deeply in the conversation. Um and, and I think that also part of it is the fact that I think a lot of us don't have, we are not in touch with our ancestors, right? Because if you understand that ancestral connection and you have that, um, that's someone, those are those people who are always with you, right? That's one of the things that happen as people begin to actively die or visions and they see people who they've known, people in their lives, their grandparents. And, and for some people, I think there's that understanding They've always been there. You just more easily apprehend them. And, and I think it's, do you see your life as a continuity? Like going back to Larkspur, right? Do you understand this portion is simply part of the cycle? Or is this just something to be feared because you don't have the absolutes? and You don't know everything. And I think that where that, that's where being a person of faith comes in is I don't have to know. And if I don't have to know... How can I then practice a presence of ministry to be with people to understand this is part of our cycle? And just as when a child is born, it has no idea what's happening and where it's going, and it must be a terrifying experience, still it is natural and it is movement forward. And um, I think that that is a very different way than we are taught to think about death here. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We've been talking this hour about death and dying with some folks who have dedicated their lives to helping guide us through this inevitability. Chaplain Omari and Lee, in your work with hospital ministry, I know you spent a lot of time with terminally ill patients and their families. I'm sure it comes with difficulties. How do you help 
these patients and their families really grapple with this? You know, the, the hope, and so that that's kind of a loaded question, Cliff. You know, it's really more the hope that you're helping them to grapple with it, right? Mm. Um, we often look at, we, we want to, on the outside, say that the grieving period or the bereaved period should be for a certain amount of time. Grief may never end, uh, and it's okay. So it's really about trying to be an encouragement and, 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 and be present and silent with them. Be, be there for them in the space that where they are in their grief, encouraging them as they look at the fact that they may have real questions or anger or issues with God and encouraging them from a spiritual space that God is big enough to accept your anger. God is big enough to even love you as you may fall out of love with, with God. Uh, and, and helping them to see that even in this moment, there is, there's nothing greater than God, but God is still with you as you find this to be probably the hardest time of your life. Um, and, and allowing them to ask those questions, allowing them to emote and to express all of the hurt that's there and never pushing them to a place to say that you need to, you know, get over it or, or that or that this is going to, you're going to get over it. So today is Maundy Thursday, which is a pretty significant day, you know, for many Christians. Jeannie, what does that mean to you? You know, what, what Becca said really resonates and that that is what it means to me is, is the embracing of the fact that we are all going to die. Now, if you are a person, not just of the Christian faith, but I think many different faiths, there is a belief in some kind of resurrection. And what does that look like? And what that looks like to me, um, I think also Lindsay spoke to this when we were talking about Larkspur. That looks like becoming another active form of life, right? Becoming that root system, becoming those trees, becoming processed uh, into the air that we are breathing and sharing with each other. It's another, it's a continuation and greater realization, right, of being part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And I see that in Maundy Thursday, too. Uh, it's, it's not an avoidance of death. It is we are walking right into it and embracing that, knowing that it is going to happen, and also believing there is somehow resurrection and redemption. And that ties directly into this work every single day. We just got a tweet from a listener about natural burial who says, in Jewish tradition, burial is natural. The body is dressed and prepared by community volunteers, buried by community volunteers in a plain pine box. No embalming, no makeup, just a natural part of life. Thank you very much for that. And I think, you know, the past few years of being in this pandemic has forced a lot of us to deal with the realities of death that we haven't necessarily done before. You know, what are your thoughts on that, Omarion? Yes, it has been trying. Right. It's uh, been right in everyone's face. It's, it's almost it seemed if, if every which way we turned, there was nothing but death. Uh, talking to many of my colleagues that are pulpit ministers, uh, they were performing funerals week after week, day after day. But truly, if we pull back a little and think about it, death is always with us, uh, just like birth, but it's always with us that those deaths were occurring and would continue to occur. Not, I'm not getting into whether or not it was 
COVID related or it could have been prevented or any of those things. What I'm speaking to around the whole concept of, of death there is that we were in a still status. We were, we were stagnant, we were not moving. People were at home, glued in and watching television. There wasn't uh, much travel or interaction with others. So in that stillness and that quietness, it caused us to be able to have to focus or be more in tune with the fact that death was truly occurring day in and day out. And be and, and, and having to face that uh, is putting a lot of us into situations where we're we're having family members, colleagues uh, that are that are dealing with that that are dealing with some serious mental health issues behind it. Because I don't think we've and not in at least not in my lifetime or in recent future, uh, the most recent future that we've dealt with that much death in our face day in and day out. Um, so it's been a task. It's it's been heavy. It's been weighty. And so now I think now is a great opportunity and time to talk about how death is natural and that it is a part of everyday life and that we, if we embrace it, we understand it. We come to a better understanding that we have to live with it, not so much trying to live through it. I've got less than a minute left. And Jeannie, I want to ask you the final question. How can we assuage our fears and worries and learn to accept death? I think by beginning to have conversations, by being present with people who, you know, we don't always know when that's going to happen, but we do sometimes being present with people, having the open conversations, um, getting proximate with people who are dying, um, having conversations with people who are actively like walking alongside people. Um, we're going to be hosting some death cafes around town. Um, through the summer and into the fall, and certainly an open invitation for anyone who wants to become more comfortable with death. That's Reverend Jeannie Alexander. She was joined by Chaplain Amarian Lee. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for this conversation. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're going to find out exactly how Nashville became a mural town. Hashtag Nashville looks good on you. Am I right? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our theme musicians, LaRange and Namir Blade, and our news director, Emily Siner. Special thanks to Kristen Beckham and Mark Zimmerman. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.